Well, good morning. It is good to see you on this uh, very special Sunday morning for us as a church family as we uh, celebrate not only our founders, but also our graduates, and uh, such a special opportunity to blend both of them together, and I appreciated the way that it fell this year in celebrating both at the same time, because it is such a great joy for us to look back to the shoulders that we stand on, to those who literally plowed out of the dirt the foundation uh, for the church, not the building, but for the church, the body who is here. And then to see another generation being launched uh, for ministry, for service to the things of the Lord, whether that be in full-time ministry or in faithful church participation and leadership and participation in all the events that are the elements of the church. We are so thankful uh, for those who are going into this next generation and reaching the next generation for the sake of Christ. And so this morning as we turn in, it's also one of those amazing things as the Lord organizes and gives to us His direction and His will. I lay out a book months in advance, years in advance sometimes, and uh, this study that is before us today is of the Lord's timing, but it is such a critical one. It is such a one that I have dwelt on for many, many years as we study in the book of Philippians the keys to Christian contentment. I'm a type A personality. I'm driven. I want to get stuff done. And I am never content. That's confession. Uh, Because we are called as Christians to contentment. So I have wrestled with this area of life and ministry for years. I've read from the Puritans to the modern day on what does it mean to pursue Christian contentment. And so I'm preaching to myself as I'm preaching to you as we study this most critical of Christian elements, these virtues that are so necessary for Christians to participate, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4 as we spend time in the Word of God together this morning. And an article published in The Atlantic, this is 10 years ago actually, highlighted some of the luxuries of years gone by that are now necessities in our society. And this was actually 10 years ago, it's actually improved from this point. And The article goes on to say, quote, in the year 1900, 90% of people in the U.S. households did not have electricity or a telephone. How many of us view that as a necessity today? Not the telephone, because we have that in our pockets now. Uh, So it's not in our house, but it's in our pockets. But how many of us view electricity as a necessity? I certainly do. I appreciated it this morning and last night when it was so warm, and I uh, clicked on the air conditioner and... It came on and cooled the house down. 1900, 90% of people in the U.S. did not have electricity or telephone. In 1915, 90% of families in the country did not own an automobile. 1930, 90% did not own a refrigerator or a washing machine. In 1945, 90%, this is my one, 90% in 1945 did not have an air conditioner inside their home. Some are saying, well, I'm still there. (laughs) But uh, 1960, five years after our founding as a church, 1960, 90% did not own a dishwasher or a color TV. 1975, 90% of American families did not own a microwave. In 1990, 1990, 
90% of people in the country did not own a cell phone or have access to internet. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, I'm using internet right now, and I've, I find it a necessity today. Uh, we could go on, but this article was just looking back over those hundred years Another author notes this, most people today are impossible to satisfy. Every meal has to be extraordinary. Every friendship has to be epic. Every concert, superb. Every sunset, meta-celestial. And is that not the truth? And we post it on our social media walls so everyone else can see how meta-celestial the sunset or sunrise is. How important or how extraordinary that food that we ordered from a restaurant is Puritan, and this is one of the books that I have spent a considerable time in, and one of the authors I have, cons- have spent a lot of time on the issue of contentment with. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this, Discontent dries the brains, wastes the spirit, corrodes and eats out the comfort of life. I think we live in a world that is discontented. And it's easy as Christians to fall into that same pattern. So this morning, we're going to continue to work our way through the book of Philippians by looking here into verses 10 through 14 of chapter 4 and focusing on this central idea, learning contentment is necessary to live out Christianity. We have a lot of Christians who have cultural Christianity They have come into Christianity because it's been convenient, it has advanced their cause, and then they become discontented. And then we also have a lot of Christians who are just discontented as a whole. They don't have the toys that they want to have. They don't have the time off that they want to have. They don't have the relationships that they want to have. And so they're seeking some way to fill that, and the church is one of their avenues of trying to become contented. And yet they're discontented with the church because it doesn't sing their music. It doesn't use their translation of the modern translations. It doesn't have the right preaching. It doesn't have the right stylistically. And so we become discontented in the church as well. Beloved, this is the opportunity to look at divine contentment. And that is where we're going to spend the next few moments together. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious heavenly father, we Our society who is discontented in every way. We know the passage that is before us. We've heard it. We've memorized it probably out of context. Lord, as we dig into it today, I pray that we would maintain it within its context. The songs of worship that have been driving us to this text this morning, we're mindful of and we are satisfied as we sung just a moment ago. We are satisfied in you. May that be more than just the confession that comes from our lips. May it be the attitudes of our hearts and the actions of our hands. That your name would be glorified in what we say and do. That we would be those who, whether we are in poverty, whether we are in great wealth, whether we are in house arrest as Paul is, or exercising great freedom as we are this morning, that we would be content. Help us to understand this great and important truth of Christianity. May we be those who pursue this elusive virtue with great resolve that we would be those to a lost and dying world who are trying to keep to themselves the most toys before they die. May we be those who show to them what it is to be followers of Christ. 
So Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we could spend in your word. We thank you for this special Sunday morning that we have together. We pray that we would be those who are worshipers of you, that your word would resonate in our hearts and in our hands in obedience, that you alone would be glorified in it. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Paul's ministry, as we come into Philippians chapter 4, Paul's ministry is coming to an end. Paul may or may not have been aware of all the details that were surrounding him, even in those moments. We certainly know that he anticipated greater ministry, but we also know that Paul was knowing that things were different. There wasn't going to be the same kind of ministries that he had before and the same freedoms that he had before. So we see both elements in the life of Paul, and his ministry is coming to an end, and he speaks of four keys to finding Christian contentment. These four keys are secrets to one of the most elusive virtues of Christian living. It affects every element of Christianity. You and I are called as Christians to be those who are not grumblers. You and I are called as Christians to be those who are not the, filling others with strife and having strife towards others. We're told not to gossip, not to envy, not to slander. All of those elements are all wrapped up into this elusive virtue of Christianity called contentment. Paul gives us four keys from a veteran of discontentment and a veteran of finding contentment. Paul gives us four keys, and they are listed in your bulletin as spaces. We're going to fill them in. We've given you some extra space there where you can write extra notes, but we're focusing on these four keys, a little different outline than normal, but these four keys, and the first one that we have here is thankfulness. The first key to the elusive virtue of contentment is be thankful. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Thankfulness requires a heart of gratitude. Consider where Paul is at. Paul is under house arrest. He's chained to a praetorian guard every day, all day long. Paul doesn't have the freedom to come and go. And Paul is staying in Rome, if you remember from the beginning of our study in Philippians, Paul is staying in Rome on his own dime, but not at his own will. So Paul has to pay the Roman authorities, for the right to be under house arrest. Can you imagine that right? Uh, Would that not be reason for discontent? I'm here in Rome. Uh, That's not the vacation I planned. I'm chained to a praetorian guard who I have to pay to be chained to him in a house that I have to pay for that I can't leave. And somebody has to bring my food to me that I have to pay for because the Romans, even though they have me under house arrest, are not paying for any of that. That would not happen in our society today. If you're under some sort of arrest, you're being paid during that time, or at least your fees and your costs are being taken care of. But for Paul, that was not the case. If he was to stay under house arrest, it was under his own dime. Otherwise, there was a dungeon for him that would also cost him at his own dime. Paul puts into practice the first of the three imperatives, the first of the three commands that we have already studied in recent weeks, going back to verse 4, he puts it into practice right now when in verse 4 he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul now does that on behalf of and for and as a result of the Philippian believers who have revived their concern for Paul. Paul focuses 
not on what he does not have, not that he does not have freedom, not that he does not have the capacity to reach out to others, that he doesn't have the capacity to go see the Philippians. He's not focusing on that. He focuses on what he does have. And he has Epaphroditus. Remember in our study of Epaphroditus, this individual that many had never studied before we went through the book of Philippians together? Epaphroditus is sitting there with Paul. And he has come with a financial gift from the Philippians. We're going to get into that gift more next week, Lord willing. But Epaphroditus has come, and with Epaphroditus has come this reblooming of the Philippians' concerns for Paul. Revived is a term that literally means, it is used of flowers to refer to a reblooming effort by the flowers. This is what happens at springtime. A reblooming. Paul is rejoicing in the Lord and thankful for the Philippians because of the revived reblooming of the Philippians' concerns. This is the only time this word is used. Paul's going to use some very unique language for Scripture. It's not unique in Greek culture. It's not unique in Roman culture, but it is unique in biblical literature. In the New Testament, this word for revived in this form is only used here. It's only used here. Paul is saying, I am thrilled. I'm rejoicing that your concern has been rebloomed. Paul took great delight in the attitude of the Philippians. For Paul, under house arrest, the action of the Philippians was like the reblooming of a luxurious garden. Contrast that with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lived in a luxurious garden and it was not enough. Did God really say? And so Eve would eat of the fruit and Adam would follow thereafter. Discontent, discontentment, was found in the very first sinful act of our very first parents. And it has been within the human race ever since. But Paul sees and uses a a word that is very unique, very specific. He uses this word to say this is rebloomed. This new garden, this luxurious garden full of blossoms, I find rejoicing in. I find satisfaction in. I find contentment in your concern. And Paul does something very unique because we would often say, and And we do this in letters, thank you notes back to somebody who has contributed something or given us a gift, and we say, thank you for the gift. Paul's going to get there to thank you for the gift, but before he does, he says, thank you, and I rejoice for your concern for the ministry. That is another key element, a, a subtle element of contentment. Paul is not concerned about finances. Paul was never concerned about finances, as we'll see in just a moment. Paul was concerned about the ministry. Paul was concerned about those that he administered to. Are they advancing in the things of Christ? Contentment focuses not on the externals, but on the internals. And it comes from the internals, as we'll see in a moment. He is quick to note 
that their inability, Paul is, he's quick to note that their inability to give or to express their concern was not due to a lack of concern, but to a lack of opportunity. They didn't have the opportunity. He doesn't go into those details. We don't know why, but he just spends a few moments reminding them of his great joy for their revived concern and the opportunity for that to be expressed. So Paul is not concerned that they had suddenly dropped off and were gone, had abandoned the faith or abandoned Paul. What he is concerned about that is he has not experienced their concern. And now that Epaphroditus is sitting at his feet, this is a thank you letter to the Philippians. Saying thank you for reviving your concern, sending Epaphroditus, finding an opportunity to send Epaphroditus to me. The person with a discontented heart is usually convinced that everything he does for God is more than enough. And that everything that God does for him is too little too late. Can you imagine Paul? Wait a minute. Epaphroditus, I'm glad that you came. I'm glad that you brought financial support. But where were you when I was arrested? Where was God when I was shipwrecked on my way to Rome? Where was God when I was seized in Jerusalem and for my protection hauled off to Rome? Can you imagine the bitterness that could have been in Paul, but instead we see this elusive virtue of contentment? And he doesn't say, Epaphroditus, where were you? Or God, where were you? Paul says, I rejoice that you have come, Epaphroditus. I sense this reblooming of the Philippians' concern, and I am content. Let me read that quote again. The person with a discontented, discontented heart is usually convinced that everything he does for God is more than enough, and everything that God does for him is too little, too late. Paul instead demonstrates contentment by choosing to rejoice. Choosing to rejoice by choosing to rejoice with thankfulness. The first key to elusive virtue of contentment is be thankful. Show gratitude. Express gratitude. Let's move on because Paul does. Verse 11, he says, the next one is your responsibility. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Imagine this, Christian. You were not, at the moment of your salvation, given the gift of contentment. You weren't, at the moment of your salvation, instantly going to be contented. Say, here I am. I've arrived. I've accepted Christ. I am now content. This is something you must learn. This is something every believer has to wrestle with. And it means that what we study in the Word of God, we apply in living it out as we learn it put forth before us. So we must be those who are actively participating in learning what contentment is. Paul has a lifetime of understanding what this looks like. Paul has been impatiently, has not rather been waiting for, impatiently waiting for aid to come to him. He hasn't been... uh, wringling his hands together, saying, I just hope that God's going to come through. 
the verb that Paul uses for learned means to learn by experience over time. Take a moment, right here in your notes, in your bulletin, or at some point that you write this down, maybe a mental note, but don't forget it. Take a moment this afternoon and reflect on all of the mercies of God demonstrated to you, small and insignificant though they may seem today, were hugely significant in the moment that God's mercy was demonstrated to you. Just spend a few minutes. Don't keep time. Just dwell on the mercies of God demonstrated to you. Now they may seem insignificant, but in the moment, they were hugely significant. I remember when I was a college student, I would watch other college students go to their mailboxes. They'd open up their mailbox and inside was a check for them. And they were so excited because they received a check to pay for their school. And I would go and I'd get a job offer. (laughs) Reach in and there's a job waiting for me there. But I remember the one time, happened one time. I was at the end of the semester, wasn't sure I was going to be able to come back in my freshman year because at the semester break, I couldn't pay off those bills. And at that semester break, I had no idea how I was going to pay the next semester. And I remember walking to my box, opening the box up, and inside was a check that covered all of the bills from the first semester. Happened one time. That's it. Today I look back, and it wasn't that huge amount of money, but that day it was hugely significant. Those are the things we think back and we think through the mercies of God demonstrated to us. That we, time just fuzzes out of our memories. We have the opportunity today, on Founders Day, the reflection of all of these many years of faithfulness to think back to the many mercies of God demonstrated throughout the last six decades, seven decades. Beloved, that is reason for rejoicing. Have there been trials? Absolutely there have been trials. But we must learn from them. And we must learn to be contented through them. Understanding contentment as well does not come automatically when you come to Christ as Savior. There's this idea in our minds that suddenly God is going to do everything for us. And and we dwell here. And that is just simply not the truth. Paul had to learn contentment the same way that we do, over a lifetime, through adversity and relationships. Consider his relationship with Barnabas over John Mark. Did Paul have to learn through adversity? Absolutely he did. Think through health. Was Paul's health good? Uh, how would yours be if, you were, if crowds attempted to kill you multiple times? Probably not great health. In fact, when some scholars believe that Paul was somewhere around 5'8", and he was stooped over, and he was leaning to one side because of his injuries, and perhaps from the thorn in his side, and, and was not somebody you would go, there's the great apostle Paul. You would look at him and say, who's that guy? And what's happened to him? That would have been the look of the apostle Paul from the outside. But we know him quite differently as the Paul who the Lord would use powerfully. Was it through adversity and finances? You better believe that it was for Paul. Was it adversity through persecution? Yes, it was. And Paul's going to give that all to us in a moment. So we're going to turn back to 2 Corinthians later on this morning. But when Paul uses the word here in Philippians for contend, or for content rather, he means contained. 
That's what content means, that you are contained. It is used of a person whose resources are uh, carefully here, because this gets into humanism today, but it, it means that uh, resources are within him so that he does not have to depend on substitutes from without. So it's not humanism, but it's easy for humanism to grab hold of this and say, ah, see, there it is. What Paul is saying is that because Christ lives in you, you can do all things through Christ, which we're going to get to in a moment, which is probably the most misquoted passage in all of Scripture. But Paul is very clear saying that I don't have to rely on substitutes. I don't need externals to find my contentments. Salary packages, health uh, position or uh, having good health, relationships with other people or popularity do not create contentment. The world is pursuing those things, and it's easy for us to follow after them, but it does not produce contentment. It is not based on the number of cars you own or how big your garage is or how many social media followers you have. How many people pay attention to you? It does not matter because you will never be content as long as you're looking to the externals for contentment. Contentment is not gained through external sources and it is not a gift. Contentment is not a gift. It is a lesson to be learned and applied. You have that responsibility. In biblical terms, a lesson to be learned is a biblical lesson understood. So we do the intellectual part, and then we live it out. That's what a lesson learned in biblical terms means. A lesson learned, understood, and applied. One author writes this. He says, it is a personal application that turns knowledge into wisdom. I like that. It's personal application that turns knowledge into wisdom. In Scripture, the opposite of wisdom is not stupidity. The opposite of wisdom in Scripture is disobedience. Disobedience is the opposite of wisdom. Commenting on this passage we're studying, Spurgeon wrote this. He said, Contentment is not a power that may be exercised naturally, but a science that is acquired gradually. We know this from experience. He goes on, says, Brothers, hush that murmur, natural thought though it may be, and continue to be, diligent pupil, to be a diligent pupil in the college of content. You don't stop learning at the college of content. So let us be those who seize our responsibility with contentment diligently and obediently in wisdom. And then let us be satisfied. Let us be satisfied. Satisfied with wherever we are. This is where we keep your finger here in Philippians and turn back to 2 Corinthians. We're going to hit several places here, 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4. <clears throat> Through it all, Paul had to learn to be content, and he's going to write a brief account to the Corinthians of the college of content, as Spurgeon calls it. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, uh, let's, let's back up to verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to that which has been written, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and we also speak. Paul accounts each one of these were not hypotheticals. Persecuted? Yes. Beaten? Yes. Paul was saying, these are my testimonies. These are the college courses and the college of content. And each of them have caused me to learn how to be content. Go on. He adds to this list another list in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. In truthful speech, we have the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for our right hand and for the left. All of this, just take verses 4 and 5 of what we just read. Don't answer this out loud or by any indication, but how many of us would have quit? How many of us would have said, you know what, I think that God has had it with you. When we, we may be Job's friends to Paul. Like, Paul, maybe you shouldn't speak the way that you speak. People would like you better. Paul, do you really need to push the leaders the way that you push the leaders? Maybe you just back off just a little bit. Go on to the next list, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27. Scripture says this as we come close to the end, and this is the one we often think of when we think of Paul's testimony of sufferings. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, beginning in verse 24, Paul says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. That is 39 lashes. He received that five times. Verse 25, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from river... Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger with false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Through it all, Paul learned to be content in all things. Most Christians would have quit the ministry with the assumption that they had done something wrong, that God was angry with them or tired of them. Say, how much more could happen to me, God? Paul learned that life was a series of divine appointments and assignments that God had used and was using to teach him godliness and contentment, and he's passing those secrets on to the Philippians and therefore to you and I. Paul had learned to accept with contentment where he was. And he says this back in Philippians chapter 4. He says this in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul knows 
He's calling us to contentment. He knows how to be brought low. He knows how to treat abundance. And he's revealing to us the secret. The word for secret is also a rare word in pages of Scripture. It's only used here in the New Testament. It is an interesting word that Paul would use, but I think he's giving to us a, or he's given to us a word picture. It is a common word in Greek culture, especially in pagan Greek culture. That's why it's interesting that Paul would use it. But Paul uses this word, this word for secret, for a very specific purpose. It was used by Greek culture as being the, uh, that which was of mystery religions for the initiation. In fact, it means initiation. Whatever it was that was the initiation into that cultic practice that was the secret way in. That's how you got in to these secret organizations. And Paul is using this word to say that he understands what it means to be initiated into contentment. So the secret to contentment, the initiation into contentment, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what it is. If someone were to tell you of something of the most elusive thing you could imagine and virtue or treasure and said, I have the secret code for you to get into it, you would say, um, okay, really? But that's because we live in a society that questions everything. Paul says, I have the initiation into contentment. You just read what he went through. He says, let me tell you what the secret sauce is. Let me tell you what it is. What Paul is saying here is, here's the secret, and I'm about to make it public. It's dependence. The secret, Paul says, I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. That's the secret. This may be this may be the most misquoted and most taken out of context verse in all of Scripture. And there's a lot of rivals to it. This is the passage that has probably been knitted more times than any other verse. It has probably been printed out and put into some poster somewhere more times than any other verse. This has probably been screensavers on more computer screens and tablets than any other verse it has probably been the most misquoted by athletes and that's saying something because a lot of them have john three sixteen on their faces and on their posters and so forth paul does not write listen carefully paul does not write that he can do everything through christ he does not write that he can do anything I want to through Christ. He isn't saying if you really put your mind to it and pray, you can do whatever you want to do through Christ. He's not saying that if others pray for you, you can do it. Whatever it is that's in front of you, you can do everything that you want to do. Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ. And what are those things? He just told us. He just told us. He can go hungry and rejoice. 
He can have plenty and rejoice. He can handle the cup overflowing with humility and proper perspective. He can hold the lowest position on the food chain and glorify God there. Whether fed or starving, he can be content in all things. As one author writes, he says this, As I have learned to abandon to him everything I am and everything I do, I find in him the strength to do whatever he wants me to do. That's what Paul means. When I give it all over to Christ, I can do what Christ wants me to do. And that may be hunger. And that may be a cup that overflows. That may be great fame. And it may mean great lowliness. Whatever it is, I can do what Christ has for me to do. So the question, the application question is, what is it that God wants you to do? You can't do whatever you want to do and use Jesus as a genie in a bottle. Or he's going to give you the three wishes so that you could do whatever you want to do. That's not what Paul is saying. What is God asking you to do? If God is asking you to do that, he will give you the strength to do that, to bear hardships or to handle the cup overflowing with humility and gratitude. What is God asking you to do? Bear headaches, heartaches, health problems, relationship challenges, or prosperity, good family relationships. What is God asking you to do? Saying, I can do all things through him is the same as saying, I can do nothing without him. That's what it means. Everything I'm driven to do is what God wants me to do, so therefore I can't do any of it without him. I need him to do it. I have to be dependent. Paul also speaks here at this point. He says, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's fascinating to me that Paul discounts the gift. The gift is that which is pulled down. He says, I, am, I rejoice, Philippians, for your reblooming of your concern for me. I praise the Lord for the finances, but that's secondary. That's secondary. Paul is saying, yet it was kind of you. And all of this, it was kind of you, Philippian believers, to be used of God to participate financially in the ministry that is going on in my house arrest. Paul was a realist. He did not shy away from describing the challenges of the Christian experience. We often do that. We forget those passages we just read in 2 Corinthians and say, well, maybe that was for Paul. It's not really for us. We're, we live in a sanitized world. It's not really for us to engage with. Paul doesn't shy away from describing the challenges of the Christian experience. But he does not dismiss either the generosity of the saints that God would use. Paul is excited because the saints at Philippi were used of God to move on behalf of Paul's life and ministry. Whatever that was, that could have been a dollar, that could have been tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Paul wasn't concerned about the amount. Paul was concerned about the heart of the Philippian believers' obedience, wisdom, and contentment. So Paul tells us what it means to be content.
Paul practiced thankfulness, responsibility, satisfaction, and dependency. David Livingstone, a great missionary, or the great missionary explorer, served in Africa for more than 30 years. He died in 1873 in Africa. On one occasion, the story is told by uh, several of those who wrote biographies on him. On one occasion, he arrived at the edge of a large territory that was ruled by a tribal chieftain. According to tradition, the chief would come out to meet him there, and Livingstone would bring forward would go forward only after the exchange was made. So he had to advance through this tribal area or would minister among the tribal people. And in order to do that, he had to go and meet with the chief. The chief then would choose any item of Livingstone's personal property that caught his fancy, and he would keep it for himself. While he would then give the missionary something in return. Livingstone had few possessions with him, but there But at this one encounter, he obediently spread all of his possessions out on the ground, his clothes, his his books, he took his watch off and set it there, and even the goats that had provided him milk, since Livingstone had a chronic stomach problem that kept him from drinking the local water, so he needed the goat to drink milk. To his dismay, the chief looks over all of the items that Livingstone had spread out before him, and Though they may be few, he passes over the clothing, he passes over the books, he doesn't take the watch, he takes the goat. And in return, the chief gave him a carved stick that looked like a walking cane. Livingstone was most disappointed. He began to gripe to God about what he viewed as a stupid walking cane. What could it do for him compared to the goat that literally kept him alive. Then one of the local men came to Livingstone and explained, that is not a walking cane. It's the king's very own scepter. And with it, you will find entrance into every village in our country. The king has honored you greatly. The man was right. God opened up Central Africa to David Livingstone. And successive waves of evangelists followed him, and wave after wave of conversions occurred in Central Africa because Livingstone gave up his goat and was given a scepter instead. Beloved, on the issue of contentment, God has not given us a walking stick. In fact, he hasn't even given us his royal scepter. He hasn't even just given us his royal scepter. He has given us himself. To live, reside, and you and I who know Christ as Savior. Let us be those who practice divine contentment. For truths, four keys, essentials to Christian contentment. They're simply stated in four words. They are not easy, but they are thankfulness or gratitude, seizing your responsibility. Be satisfied, content with where you're at, wherever you are.
and be dependent. To do what God wants you to do and to pursue what God wants you to pursue. What an important lesson for us to learn on this day in which we're about to celebrate our graduates from high school. What an important lesson for us to think back on as we think of our founders. And what an important lesson for us to apply in our own hearts and lives today as we think about what it means to be content in a discontented, materialistic, fast-paced world. May we be found as those who have divine contentment because Christ resides in you. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, I praise you and thank you for the great truth of divine contentment. Lord, this is something that has fascinated Christians from the first day. We praise you for the testimony of Paul and the way that it has been poured out for us. We now exalt you and thank you for the opportunity to put it into practice. We thank you and praise you for that. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this as we continue in song now. Lord, we ask that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say, that you would be exalted. Lord, we are those people who live in a discontented world, challenged by every side, afflicted by those who seek after the things of the flesh to find contentment to die with the most toys. May we be unlike them. May your name be glorified in all that we say and do. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.